This morning, congregation, we would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading from verses 11 through 22. In your pew Bible, you can find that on page 1380. After we read a portion of God's inspired word, we'll then also read from the Belgic Confession, which we receive and believe to be a faithful summary of the word of God. This morning, we'll be reading from article 21, and in your pew rack, you'll find a forms and prayers book, and you can find article 21 on page 174 within that book. We read from the Word of God, beginning at Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Thus far the reading from the word of God. Article 21 of our Belgic Confession is entitled simply The Atonement. And it states, we believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, made such by an oath, and that he presented himself in our name before his father to appease his wrath with full satisfaction by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood for the cleansing of our sins, as the prophets had predicted. For it is written that the chastisement of our peace was placed on the Son of God, and that we are healed by his wounds. He was led to death as a lamb. He was numbered among sinners and condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, though Pilate had declared that he was innocent. So he paid back what he had not stolen, and he suffered the just for the unjust in both his body and his soul, in such a way that when he sensed the horrible punishment required by our sins, his sweat became like big drops of blood falling on the ground. He cried, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he endured all this for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore we rightly say with Paul that we know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. We consider all things as dung for the excellence of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice once made which renders believers perfect forever. This is also why the angel of God called him Jesus, that is, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. 
a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will note, if you listen carefully, uh, that in the Belgic Confession's 21st article, there is a quote of the Apostle Paul taken from 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Uh, that quote is that Paul purposed to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, by God's grace, although we acknowledge our own shortcomings, that's also our desire in the midst of this congregation to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified that we would be a congregation uh, that at the end of the day, so to speak, in its very essence of our core conviction and belief, that we are Christ-centered, that we also take great joy in knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, my homiletics professor uh, encouraged us back in my seminary days to think of our sermons and to try to identify humanly speaking, of course, recognizing full dependency upon the Holy Spirit, but to try to identify what the goal of our sermon would be. And so again this morning, uh, in the uh, early morning hours, as I sat in the desk in my study, I reflected upon the sermon. I asked, what, what is my goal for this sermon? Now again, I want to stress, lest we be misunderstood, it's not as if we understand that we ourselves can accomplish this. There is prayerful dependency upon the work of the Holy Spirit, blessing the preaching of the Word. Nevertheless, what is the goal? The goal would simply be this, that we as a congregation and whoever hears these words and whatever means would know that there is one perfect mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's the simple goal for this morning, to make known to you as a congregation that there is one mediator, between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And that having made that known, that then we would be drawn to Him in the sincere, continuous exercise of a genuine faith. Uh, Article 21 of the Belgian Confession concludes, you might say, the consideration of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Further articles will then transition into what we call soteriology, that is the application of redemption, and it will deal with such things as faith and uh, such things as justification and conversion. The last several articles uh, of our Belgian Confession have dealt with who exactly Jesus Christ is and, and what exactly He has done. And especially in Article 21, there is this focus upon Jesus Christ with His two real natures united in one person in the role or in the capacity of a mediator. And that gives us our theme then for this morning, our belief concerning Jesus as mediator. We'll notice, first of all, the person of Jesus as mediator, and then secondly, the work of Jesus as mediator, and then thirdly, the result of Jesus as mediator. So our belief concerning Jesus in his identity or his essential role as mediator, the person, the work, and the result. So the person of Jesus as mediator, and the first thing we want to emphasize is that Jesus Christ has been appointed to this position of mediator. Now perhaps we do well to first of all define what the scriptures mean with the concept mediator. Well, synonyms would be sureties or perhaps a guarantor, but what this idea is is that a person is appointed to a position with a task, and that task is to bring about reconciliation between two parties or two persons 
uh, who stand in opposition one to another. Uh, we often think of mediation as trying to bring two parties who are at odds with one another to a point of mutual compromise whereby there can be a certain degree of reconciliation. And while that does a some service, we should not misunderstand this whole idea of mediator in the sense that Jesus Christ gets the Father to give a little bit and gets the sinner to give a little bit and in that way brings the, the Father down from His throne of infinite justice and brings the sinner through a process of moral improvement so that there is harmony and reconciliation. That's not the idea that Scripture would lay before us of the mediating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures would tell us that Jesus Christ was appointed to this task and to this office of mediator from eternity with what theologians often call a covenant of redemption or a pact of salvation or a council of peace. And to understand something of the fullness and the greatness and the wonder of our salvation, we do well to follow the pages of Holy Scripture and go back to the very dawn of eternity, if we can speak that way, for our human understanding. And there, before anything was ever created, there was an eternal counsel, an eternal will, an eternal decision within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the purpose of exalting Himself, God determined that He would save a people unto Himself. And the Father elected certain individuals, certain particular individuals, whom He would save. And the Son concurred and agreed with this eternal counsel. And the Son said, I will accomplish all that is necessary for their salvation so that there might be a people known as the church, those who have been called out of the fallen mass of humanity, those who have been gathered together as a worshiping community, that they might praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout time and all throughout eternity. And we dare not forget the third person of the Trinity, that of the Holy Spirit, who in this council of peace or in this covenant of redemption also concurred with the Father and with the Son. So the three persons, we might say, were of one mind. And the Spirit said, I will take that eternal life that has been obtained by the Lord Jesus Christ through His mediatorial work, and I will apply that unto the hearts of the elect, giving them, through the process of regeneration, a true exercise of saving faith. And so we ought to just step back momentarily from time to time and contemplate the wonder that before anything ever was, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were of one purpose and one mind to save a people unto themselves. And congregation, if that does not cause us to bow down and worship, then I sincerely do not know what would. Think, boys and girls, before there was a single tree, before there was a single animal, before there was a single fish in the sea, before there was even a sea, God chose us to worship Him and to fellowship with Him. And He did so by appointing the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to this capacity of mediator. Ephesians 3, verse 11. And any time you need to defend, perhaps to a skeptic or to an unbeliever, 
the eternal purposes of God in salvation. Ephesians is a good place to begin. Ephesians 3, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is God doing throughout human history? He's fulfilling his eternal decree. And what is the focus of his eternal decree? The glorification of himself through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ was appointed to the role of mediator. Now we read of this in our texts, but also other scriptural passages. And so if you've kept your Bible open this morning, one cross-reference would be to Hebrews 5, verse 1. There we read as follows, that every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Uh, Now, I trust that those of you who are older have been well catechized, well instructed in the threefold office of Christ as mediator. And if you find yourself in the capacity, by God's providence, as a catechism teacher uh, or a Sunday school teacher or, or a teacher in another capacity, Uh, may I take this opportunity to encourage, yes, even demand, that the subsequent generation, our young people, our covenantal young people, teenagers, boys and girls, that we who are in capacities of teaching, and that of course would include parents and the Christian schools, uh, and also the elders as they go about their pastoral work, make sure that our young people and our children understand who Jesus Christ is and what he is, what he has done, and that he is the mediator, and that in his mediatorial work, there's a threefold office, that of prophet, priest, and king. So not just in route memorization, but with a heartfelt knowledge, uh, the next generation of this church would also profess to believe Jesus Christ, because Christ is simply his title, and that means that he has been Uh, appointed and anointed by the Holy Spirit to be, as our catechism wonderfully summarizes, our prophet, priest, and king. So we focus in this article 21, and also in our text, and really the entirety of Hebrews is written to emphasize the superiority of Jesus Christ as priest over everything that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, all of the earthly priests, all of the earthly sacrifices, uh, the unending flow of blood that came forth from animals, it all pointed forward to something greater, and that greater is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5 verse 1 identifies the role of a priest. A priest was to represent people in the presence of God. But notice how he represents those sinful people. And this points out the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. The priest does not come and, as a defense attorney, just try to put a spin on the facts. So the priest did not come into the presence of God, especially on the Day of Atonement, and he did not say in the presence of God, well, Lord God Almighty, the people of Israel are not really that bad. He did not say, well, the people of Israel just simply lack some sense of God consciousness. He did not say, well, the people of Israel are much better than the Canaanites. In essence, the priest came representing the people, the covenant people, and he said, they have sinned. They have sinned against you, O God. But there is blood. 
There is sacrificial blood. And I firmly believe that if you just simply read Scripture, you will have to acknowledge that the church needs to get back to the focus on the basics. Coming into the presence of an infinitely holy God and saying, we have sinned. We have sinned against God. We make no excuses. We offer no explanations. But we look with hope and with faith upon the mediator, Jesus Christ. And we look at his work. And that's our second point. What exactly does Jesus do as a mediator? Uh, Two things that come up within Article 21, reflecting upon Scripture, is that Jesus Christ provides a death of sacrifice and a death of atonement. Now you'll notice if you look at uh, those two subpoints, there is a common theme running throughout them, and that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we want to be clear that we believe that the work of our mediator is a unified work. And so here also, a word of encouragement to the catechism instructors uh, to instill within our young children and our young people uh, a working knowledge of the states of humiliation and exaltation. Uh, This is part of why we confess this every Sunday evening with the Apostles' Creed. We profess to believe that Jesus Christ, and then we go through the states of his humiliation, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. But we never stop there. We continue on to the works, the states of his exaltation, uh, that he rose again from the dead, uh, that he ascended into heaven, that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And then we point forward with hopeful anticipation to that final display of his exaltation that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That was what we mean by the unity in the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly we affirm all of that and every single aspect is essential. But you cannot deny that if you read Scripture, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasized as being absolutely essential for our salvation. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? More specifically, why did he have to die the death that he died? We point out in our outline that his death was a sacrifice. And we are well aware that modernism, as it affected theology will begin to snicker and laugh at this point. And we are well aware that there are many who find themselves within the realm of a Christian church, so-called, who will also join in snickering and laughing. Oh, this preacher's going to preach some more about the death of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. Yes, we are. Because we cannot get around it and do faithfulness to Scripture. And we chose our text, you might say, somewhat randomly. I don't mean that we just flopped open the Bible and put our finger on a passage and said, well, this will be the text. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's everywhere within Scripture. Hebrews 10 is just one example. But notice how you read through this, and you cannot get around the fact 
of the importance of the death of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. Just simply verse 12 of Hebrews 10, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And now we could spend a whole lot of time, time which we don't have this morning, uh, unfolding the development of the sacrificial system. We just want to underscore that God is the one who reveals the sacrificial system to sinful man. And he did so there in the Garden of Eden as he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal, an animal that had been sacrificed. And what exactly is the sacrifice? The sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself. So he's not only the priest, but he is also the sacrifice. He offers up himself. He offers up himself in regards to his human nature because it is the human nature that has offended God by sinning against God. And so Jesus Christ, having taken a human nature unto his person in what we call the hypostatic union, now takes that human nature, body and soul, the essential components of human nature, and he lays them, so to speak, on the altar. And certainly not passively, as if things were out of his control. He's active all throughout the trial that he underwent in the presence of, of Pilate. He's in complete control, even as he is led outside of the city of Jerusalem. He is in complete control, even as the Roman centurions begin to pierce his hands and his feet with nails. And as he is lifted up off of the earth, underneath the presence of heaven, he remains in complete control, offering himself as the sacrifice for sin, so that God's holy wrath God's holy wrath that is stirred up in indignation against sin can then be poured out upon him, not just on the cross, but especially in the Garden of Gethsemane and especially during those dark hours on the cross. And here you notice also that our Belgic Confession, never let us think that the Belgic Confession is inspired. All we ask is that when you read the Belgic Confession, to ask, is this scriptural? And, and it, so to speak, weaves biblical passages together and it identifies the garden of Gethsemane and the dark hours of agony on the cross as it speaks about this sacrifice. And so great drops of blood were pressed out of him as the wrath of God rested upon him. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't pretend to know the fullness of the answer. But with humble confidence, I do know part of the answer. Why have you forsaken me? Because of that eternal covenant of redemption. Because of the salvation of a church. Because of the forgiveness of sins. Because of the appeasing of wrath. How do I know that that is the answer? Well, you can simply think of a passage such as Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out 
having cleared, having completely done away with the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it, that is, all of the guilt of the trespasses, and this is what it means to have an atoning sacrifice. He has taken it all, and what has He done with it? He has nailed it to the cross. So all that is against me, that would be my sins, my trespasses. Where are they now? They are nailed to the cross. And when Jesus Christ said those triumphant words, it is finished, he meant it. Atonement. Atonement means uh, this idea of a covering, propitiation. And so there was in the Old Testament the Day of Atonement in which the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies and, and sprinkled the sacrificial blood upon the mercy seat that was, was over top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the angels were there looking down, all symbolic of the holy majesty of God. And in the Ark of the Covenant, among a few other items, were the tablets of the commandments of God. But the blood was sprinkled in between the angels as they reflect the majesty and the holiness of God looking down upon the tablets of the commandments. In between. There was the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there was the sprinkling of blood so that symbolically when God in His infinite holiness looks down upon us, there's blood in between. The blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ that is sufficient for the remission of sins. And that brings us in then to our third point, the result of Jesus as mediator. Here we cross-reference a passage again in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And having been perfected, He, that is of course Jesus Christ, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. The author, the accomplished, eternal salvation. So you might say, what is the result of Jesus as mediator? You could put it down in one word, salvation. Let us never forget that this is what Jesus came into the world to accomplish. The salvation of sinners. Now yes, he is the wise prophet. And he is the royal king. But let us never forget also that he is the sufficient priest. And you can, of course, divorce these one from another. That's why we didn't say three offices of Christ, but we said a threefold office. In this salvation, there is the inclusion of the remission of sins. Remission, perhaps, a somewhat antiquated word, but it's not a word I think that we should just give up because it's, it's a good word. Remission... Remit means to provide payment for. Payment has been remitted. Payment has been submitted. So all of the legal requirements that are against the people of God on the basis of their sins and their transgressions, all of them have been paid for. So it's not, it's not as if Jesus Christ just encourages the Father to turn away and, and not see our sins, but He provides the full payment for our sins. And here I do believe there is a comforting, logical deduction for the child of God. 
Because God is a just God. Being a just God, God cannot, nor would he ever, but he cannot demand double payment. Now in our own day-to-day interactions, and boys and girls, you, you know how this works, and let's say I'm going to sell you something, whatever it is. Let's say I, I have a basketball. I'm going to sell you a basketball. And I'd say, I'm going to sell you this basketball for $5. And you say, okay, I'll buy that basketball for $5. So you give me a $5 bill, and I give you the basketball. And now imagine the next day I come and I say, you owe me $5. You'd say, no, I paid you the $5 yesterday. If I said to you, well, I want another $5, you'd probably say, well, well, that's not right. You you, you can't charge me twice. You can't charge me double. And you're exactly right. I can't charge you double. That wouldn't be honest. That wouldn't be just. We don't simply want to bring the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ down to this earthly illustration, but allow that illustration to prove or to display this point. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, payment has been submitted for all of your sins. On one hand, that payment happened in eternity, in the eternal counsel of God. Historically speaking, that payment took place on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. And respectfully speaking, if God were to demand payment for sin from the Christian, God would not be just and Christ would be a liar. Now, of course, God is just and Christ is not a liar. God will not demand payment for our sins from our hands if we are in Christ. Because payment has been submitted. And when Christ said it is finished, He speaks truth. And congregation, whenever in God's providence it is our time to leave this earth and enter into the realm of eternity, and stand before an infinitely holy God. That's the basis of our confidence. That I can enter into the holy presence of God Himself without fear, because payment has been made. Once and for all by Jesus Christ. And this ultimately is what we refer to, of course, as the salvation of God's people. Matthew 1, verse 21, a simple verse, a well-known verse, but a powerful verse. The angel testifies, and Mary shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Boys and girls, I hope you know what Jesus means. I'm going to tell you what it means, but I hope you know. It simply means the Lord will save. The Lord will save his people from their sins by providing payment for those sins in the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope we know what the name Jesus means so well that every time we we use it, every time we hear it, every time we sing of it, every time we read of it in the Bible, there would be this echo within our minds, but also within our souls. 
He has accomplished salvation. He has provided payment so that I am at peace with God because my sins have been dealt with definitively once and for all. And so, congregation, do you remember the goal of the sermon? One goal, a twofold goal, but one goal. To make known to you that Jesus Christ is the only mediator. And that having made that known, we would be drawn unto him in a continued exercise of faith. And so in closing, may I just simply put the question to all who hear these words. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you put all of your hope in his person and in his work? Nothing of your own works, nothing of your own pedigree, nothing of your own, all of Christ. If you don't, I call upon you today. Don't let this day end until you have put all of your faith and all of your trust and all of your confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. Believing in Him, people of God, you have all that you need for time and for eternity. I know life can come at you in a difficult way. I know that there are burdens that you have to carry. I know that there are discouragements, difficulties. There are things that cause the tears to fill the eyes of the people of God. But at the end of the day, never forget that we have a perfect high priest, the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of our sins. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we come with humility but also with confidence within our souls because you in your infinite grace already from eternity have prepared a way for us to approach you without fear. Without fear of condemnation. Without fear of guilt. We do not deny our sins. We confess them, Father. But we confess them with both of the eyes of our soul looking in genuine faith upon Jesus Christ. And so we do thank you for him and for his work. And we ask that you would enable us to understand, uh, even at a greater depth, who he is and what he has done for us and for our salvation. All of this we ask in his name alone. Amen.